Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going back to the world of literature, and we're going to be talking about uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, now, this novel, when it's discussed, is usually discussed as an anti-war novel, and we will talk about that a little bit, but this novel actually fits into a lot of other areas as well. And so I want to kind of go into some of those areas and not just stick to the way it's normally talked about, um, because it does make a good tie-in between the modernist and the postmodernist tradition. And I think this book will be a good uh, introduction for postmodernism to kind of give you a little bit of a taste of it before we start to talk about works that are a, a lot more uh, intensive in postmodernism. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about the anti-war uh, part of this first. Now, often when people hear a novel, a song, whatever a person is anti-war, they automatically make the assumption that this person is anti-soldier, anti, you know, against the troops. And this is not generally the case. In fact, most of the people who write anti-war novels, poems, songs, uh, the large majority of them are people who actually were in the military and who served. And this is true of Vonnegut. Um, he writes this in the 60s, about 20 years after, but this is about uh, roughly based on experiences he had when he was a prisoner of war um, in Germany during the bombing of Dresden. So Vonnegut is not anti-soldier. He's not anti, you know, the troops. He's very much against the whole idea of war itself. <clears throat> and so when we start this, he begins to talk about in the first chapter, you know, it, that he kept talking, telling everybody he was going to write his Dresden novel and that he was working on it. And he actually d isn't able to write it for about 20 years, until about 20 years after. Uh, and part of it is he's having a hard time processing it. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the uh, psychological part. So I don't want to go into that too much right now. Um, but he... He's part of the anti-war literature movement in that he doesn't portray warfare in the way that it had traditionally been portrayed. Um, traditionally, when you you know read the older stories about war, it's always glorious and honorable. And even in the mainstream, you know, you look at the you know movies and books, uh, especially that came out in the forties, fifties, and sixties. The war movies, they're all you know very patriotic. John Wayne. Uh, you know, different different actors playing war heroes, and they glamorize it. They make it seem glorious. Well, a lot of what the anti-war people are doing is trying to give a more realistic picture of what it actually is and was. One of the first Americans you get to do this is actually um, Crane when he writes The Red Badge of Courage, when a lot of people, a lot of you have probably read The Red Badge of Courage in junior high or high school. And this was somewhat of a anti-war book uh, based in the Civil War. It's about a soldier who basically panics and runs away in the middle of the battle. Um, he runs into someone and gets hit in the head uh, when they're all fleeing. And so he gets a wound on his head and he, you know, gets to portray it off as this is a war wound. But underneath, he knows that it's not. Um, now, this is kind of showing a different thing where 
you know, from the outside, everybody sees him come back with his head bandage and, oh, he's a, he's a war hero, but he actually got it from running away. And so this is one of the first works that, in American literature anyways, that really starts to question whether war is as great as people make it out to be. And you get a lot of this literature kind of blossom out of World War I. <clears throat> Dalton Trumbo writes, uh, Johnny Got His Gun, uh, based on things from World War I. And Johnny Got His Gun is very much an anti-war novel. Um, it describes from the first-person perspective a character who slowly figures out what his condition is. Um, so most of the book is told in flashbacks. Uh, it's, it's a very rough book to read because as the patient lying in the bed figures out how bad off he really is, um, he, he starts to completely lose it. Um, he's, he's had his arms and legs blown off. Basically all of his face is blown off. His eyes are gone. His mouth is gone. His hearing is shattered. So he's left to be just a trunk. Um, he's fully aware of everything, but he's also unable to communicate with the people outside of him. And Dalton Trumbow wrote this, you know, discussing some of the horrors that actually happened in World War I with trench warfare. And World War I, as we've talked about in other podcasts, really is a war that, for most people, they see it very differently because it's it's a war that is very gruesome, it's very brutal, there's a high number of casualties, and as I said, this is where you start to get a more large blooming of anti-war novels. You also have poets like Wilfred Owen and, you know, uh, Hemingway later writes A Farewell to Arms. Uh, World War I was something that definitely led to a lot of the issues in the lost generation of the 20s and 30s. Well, Vonnegut is kind of the next generation. He was a World War II veteran. As I said, he was captured, uh, taken to Dresden during the time of the firebombing of Dresden. Uh, in fact, the title of the book, Slaughterhouse Five, is the is the, you know the name on the building where he and the soldiers that had captured him were hiding in the in the basement. It was an actual slaughterhouse, just labeled Slaughterhouse Five. Um, so the view he gives of war and, and the and the view he takes towards war is not the glorious, you know, the good guys, you know, overcoming the bad guys. He's showing you, he, he's thinking about and he's experienced how brutal this is on the ground. Um, and one of the things that really starts to change in World War One and World War Two is battlefields are not far away from the cities. Even in the earlier wars, a lot of them happened in the cities, but not to the extent they had in the two world wars. Um, and this is where you get people to start to finally realize that war doesn't happen on some battlefield, on some neutral, you know, turf like, you know, a, a football stadium or a baseball field. This rages through where people are actually living. You know, most of the casualties of modern war um, are civilians. They're not even soldiers. You know, the two battle, the two sides are bombing each other, shooting at each other, and they happen to be in the middle of a city while they're doing this. And most of the people in that city aren't involved in the fighting. They're caught in the middle. 
And this is something that, you know, you see it when you look at war coverage around the world. Um, when you, you know, look at people often, you know, don't think too much about wars that happen in foreign countries. But if you look at the battlefield footage, this is happening where people live. This is not happening in some neutral territory, you know, where it's just the two armies there fighting each other. Uh, again, most of, the, most of the casualties in war are innocent bystanders. In World War II in particular, there really is no good estimate of how many people were killed in that war because a lot of times as, you know, it raged through all over the world, through, you know, islands, through jungles, through deserts, um, after the fighting was over, sometimes they would realize, oh, wow, there used to be a village here and, you know, who knows how many people were in that village when the bombing started and, you know, how many of them were killed. So there never really has been a good estimate of how many people were killed in World War II because, as I said, it happened all over the world. A lot of times, you know, it, people they would inadvertently start bombing and there would be a village right there next to the uh, opposing military and that village would get wiped out. So Vonnegut is very much part of this tradition in, in the 20th century, 21st century, of showing what war actually does and showing that it's not just, you know, glory and honor and soldiers, it's it's horrible for everyone. You know, the character in this suffers from, you know, what in World War One would have been called shell shock, what we would call PTSD now. Um, and Vonnegut himself suffered from this, from the experience of being in Dresden and being bombed. Okay, I want to move now into a little bit of talking about the postmodern aspects of this novel. This is what's often known as a uh, meta-narrative. And in a meta-narrative, there's a difficult distinction sometimes between what is real and what is fiction and part of the story. And we've talked about a few meta-narratives already. We've talked about, you know, Kerouac's On the Road a little bit. We've talked about Henry Miller's books. Uh, we talked a little bit about Annie John uh, by Jamaica Kincaid. Uh, these books are blendings of fiction and reality. <clears throat> and in postmodernism, they really start to take off and become more uh, popular and more widespread. Um, in Annie John, as I talked about when I talked about that book, the main character is, you know, a young girl in Antigua who's pretty much brighter than all of her peers, never fits in, sort of has a nervous breakdown, recovers from it, and then at the end of the story leaves to go to England and to never return because she didn't really belong in that society. And if you read the biography of Jamaica Kincaid, a lot of that follows along closely with her own biography. Um, the novel Plot Against America, if you ever read that, uh, there is, you know, Philip Roth writes this. Roth sets Plot Against America in, um, the, uh, in New York during World War II, prior to World War II into the, into the beginning of World War II. Um, the main family in the, uh, novel are the Roths. They're a Jewish family, and they all have the same name of you know, the author and his fa his real-life family. Um, Philip Roth was a child 
when World War II broke out. Um, he did live in New York. He was from a Jewish family. Uh, the family members are all named the same in the novel that, you know, they were in the, the writer Philip uh, Roth's biography in his real life. But there's a twist in this where the history has changed. In Plot Against America, instead of um, FDR being re-elected, uh, Charles Lindbergh runs against him, who was very much uh, a Nazi sympathizer and part of the America First movement, uh, which was, you know, the, the movement that was pro-Nazi and wanted to keep the U.S. out of the war with Germany. And so this is a historical what if. So he takes, he starts with his real biography and the bio, you know, in the, his real autobiography, I should say, in the biography of his family at that time period. And then he changes a major historical event and writes the whole novel around that. So what you end up having is, you know, where does fiction end and reality begin? And this is what metafiction is. You know, there's always this strange blending. And one of the things that the postmodern writers are doing with this is showing that, you know, one, we do fictionalize a large part of our lives. We think we're certain ways. We have certain beliefs about the way things are, and those beliefs may or may not be true. But also it kind of gives us a sense that if things were slightly different, how radically different they might suddenly become. And, you know, this is something you see in Slaughterhouse-Five as well. Uh, Vonnegut, while he starts out in the novel acting as if he's telling, you know, he's going to, he's talking about him wanting to write this novel and what he did and, you know, meeting with a friend of his. And then he's, you know, says, okay, I finally got ready and I'm going to write this novel. And he goes into chapter two and he starts in chapter, and he, you know, he, at the end of chapter one, he tells you how he's going to begin the book and end the book. And that's how he begins it and ends it when he goes into chapter two, except now he switches over to a fictional character named Billy, who is and isn't him. You know, he has elements of him, but elements that are not him. Um, and then he also switches it to a little bit of a, um, of a science fiction novel, because the main character in the book is someone who is not stuck in time like the rest of us. Uh, and this is something that you saw in modernism where I told you they played with the timeline where you'd have flashbacks and flash forwards. This happens in here, but even to a greater extent, because this is someone who, you know, claims that he was abducted by aliens and he has a different view of time and he's able to, you know, see that all moments in time are still in existence. <clears throat> so it's, um, you know, you have the element of science fiction in there. And a lot of what postmodern novels, movies, you know, uh, books do, stories do, is they mix in philosophical uh, what-ifs. And this is a philosophical what-if that he mixes in of what if time isn't anything like the way we experience it, that time is only linear to us because that's the way humans experience time. But in this alien you know, race that kidnaps him, um, they kind of show him that, no, time, every, every moment in time still exists. There's no such thing as time passing. 
every, every moment uh, is kept uh, eternally. It, it's eternally going on. So when you look at someone's death, that only happens in that one moment of time. You can the, the species can look back and forth to times when that person was still alive, and those times are still just as real and still going on. He basically said they're four-dimensional beings. They can look at, you know, the three dimensions we see and the dimension of time the same way we would look at a painting. You know, they're able to just look at whatever part of the painting they want, and whatever part they're looking at is as much there as every other part. So it, it definitely plays with the philosophical idea of, you know, what if everything is eternal? What if this moment right now where I'm speaking and you're listening um, doesn't really end? It just, it, it, it's like stuck and frozen and it, and it is always there. And just because of the kind of creatures we are, we don't have the ability to move back and forth and access whatever time we want. Well, the character in the novel does have that ability. So, you know, as, as you get into the postmodern, um, there's really a lot more, even more experimentation that goes on with time, with structure, with meaning than what you had with the modernists. And, you know, this novel is a good example of that. And I say it's a good example because it's one that some postmodern novels can be very, very difficult to understand what's going on. This one is at least much closer to linear. At least you understand there's flashbacks and forwards. Um, but it isn't, uh, it isn't like the old style, and it has a lot of elements of the newer postmodern style. <clears throat> Now, the other aspect I want to go into this is the aspect of free will. I'm sorry, not free will, the psychological aspect. And I'm thinking more of the psychological aspect of the author. And this ties into both the postmodern and the anti-war. Because the, you know, the author, the physical person who wrote the book, Kurt Vonnegut, really did struggle for 20 years trying to write this book. And you know, every time he'd try to write it, he couldn't quite wrap his mind around it. Um, and partially because what he witnessed and what he lived through was so horrible. And, you know, it took him all of that time to process it. And when he does end up processing it, he can't process it directly. He can't go back into that time period and do anything that he's able to do or do anything that you know, is, is meaningful if he's the actual person going through all of this. He has to set up a fictional person to go through all of this and <clears throat> fictionalize some parts of the story. And this is, you know, from a psychological perspective, this is something that does happen. You know, when people have traumatic experiences, um, they can't always deal directly with it. They can't always put themselves in that moment because they're too traumatized for one and also their their mind has kind of blocked a lot of it and said no you this is not something I'm going to let you have access to you know our mind sometimes can be a a censoring device that you know we, we've talked about this before where it gives us what we focus on and sort of filters out the unimportant things well in this case it can sometimes filter out the things that are too devastating to deal with. 
So from a psychological perspective, it's pretty easy to see why it might take him 20 years to write this book. Um, because this isn't something that would be easy to deal with. If you've ever read anything about the bombing of Dresden, it was basically about a, almost two days of pure hell. People were you know, being incinerated. There were so many bombs dropped on the city uh, that a lot of the people who died didn't even die from burns. Um, they suffocated. All of the air was sucked out of, the oxygen was sucked out of the area. And people were trying to run from this and hide under, you know, underground in shelters and stuff. And, you know, they found a lot of them buried in those shelters. Um, some of them were incinerated who were, you know, towards the outside. But a lot of them were just, just suffocated. Because, as I said, when a fire, if you know much about fire, when it gets too intense and too hot, it basically draws in all the oxygen it can. So it sucks all of the breathable oxygen out and people die of suffocation. Um, <clears throat> smoke inhalation is one, but, you know, sometimes if the fire is intense enough, it's not even smoke inhalation. It's just a fact of there's no oxygen in the air. So as people are breathing, they're not breathing in any oxygen. They're just pulling in CO2 and other things like that, and they end up suffocating. So to live through something like this, you know, wouldn't be easy to put on the page. And, you know, people who went through a lot of the things in World War II, there's a lot of different um, ways that some of these narratives went. I, I did a whole class on film and literature from the Holocaust in grad school. And, you know, there are as many ways of dealing with this tra these traumas and tragedies as there are different people. You know, some people tried to retreat to humor some. Some people... Um, you know, tried to gloss over some of the facts. Some people were sucked into, you know, complete despair and hopelessness. And, you know, some people just became completely numb to it. And all of these are different ways that humans cope with trauma and tragedy and horrors. And a large part of what, you know, Vonnegut does with this book is, from a psychological perspective, he tries to put his own trauma, his own PTSD out there in a way that he can still talk about what happened, but get enough distance from it that it doesn't overwhelm him. <clears throat> when he's in the first chapter talking to his friend, he goes to visit his friend, uh, his friend's wife, whose name is Mary, um, absolutely hates him at first. She doesn't even want to look at him. She's giving him dirty looks. She doesn't want to be in the room with him. And he can't figure out what he's done to anger her so much. And finally, she sort of just breaks down and tells him that, you know, she, she doesn't want him writing this book about how glorious war is. She goes, you know, she's, her husband had been in the war with him, said, you know, you two were babies when you did this. And right now I've got babies upstairs. And I don't want more babies sucked into this, you know, way of being, this way of thinking. You know, she's, she's very much uh, afraid that he's going to write another one of these, you know, uh, pro-war, this was so wonderful, you know, we, we were the good guys type narratives. And he's like, no, that's, that's absolutely what, not what I'm intending to do. He's, he's, you know, he kind of puts her mind at ease that, no, I'm going to actually talk about how bad it was. And from that point on, she 
she likes him and she actually becomes a, you know, uh, a supportive person. In fact, he puts her in the, he puts her name as, uh, you know, the dedication at the beginning of the book. So, you know, this different approach to writing about war really does take off in the 20th century. Starts in World War One, uh, goes into World War Two, and you really, you know, also see it in Vietnam. But a lot of the war books, the anti-war books that come out in Vietnam, were actually written by people who were in World War Two, or the Korean War. Okay, I'm gonna break off this episode for here. I'm having a little bit of trouble with my voice still. Hopefully, next time I. Uh, talk to you. My voice will be better. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.